Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, there are words um, sometimes that we have a hard time to express of who you are. But in that verse, you are all together good. Lord, let it resonate. Let it resonate within us. Let it resonate within your people who are here today. I ask it in your son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. Whew, that was quite the worship. I think we could just keep on doing that, huh? You are all together good. So good morning, Mercy Hill. Good morning, guests. I see a couple new faces out there. It's great to have you with us. Um, just by way of introduction, really quick, probably the least important part of this whole thing. Uh, my name is Brad Furkowski. I am one of the pastoral interns here at Mercy Hill. Worship's good when it stirs you emotionally, is it not? Um, Anyways, yes, I'm one of the pastoral interns. <laughs> um, if you have been attending frequently or if you listen to our podcast at all, you know that we are working our way through the book of Romans. And so today we're diving further into chapter 8. Um, so if you do have your Bibles with you or if you use electronic devices, whatever it is that you do use to follow along, feel free to open them up now. Again, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses, we're going to specifically be looking at verses 28 through 30. So if you'll just be there with me and, and I'll go ahead and read it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray once more. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We Thank you that we get to come to you in this way, that we get to know you better by drawing near to you through your scriptures. Lord God, I just ask that you will be with me today, that my words will be your words, that, uh, Lord, that you will be honored and glorified. And I ask it in your son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name, I pray. Amen. I find it interesting, God works in interesting ways and um, there during the worship with the last song, I believe it was the last song, maybe it was the second to last song um, there, was a, there was a verse that was just us telling God that we love him and the reason I find that interesting and I say that the Lord works in interesting ways is because of how my plan is to open this sermon there is a promise in today's passage. But that promise is contingent upon two qualifications. And we'll get to those. So before we get to the passage, I begin by asking a question. 
a question, ironically, that I saw written on a poster board yesterday. I was, I was driving through Berlin and that main intersection there with the coffee shop on the side. There was a small Mennonite girl standing. And she was holding a sign. And it said, do you know Jesus? I know this may sound like a weird or odd question to be starting a sermon with, um, but it is more than appropriate, and I'll explain it as we move along. So do you know him? And not only do you know him, but do you love him? Do you love the God-man? And by extension, better yet, by connection, his Father, our Father. Do you love God through his Son? Do you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as the one who lived a perfect life so that his righteousness counts for you? It is vital that we know him. But not only that we know him, but that we love him. That we love him, not only for the gifts that he gives us, but just simply for who he is. So what is the promise that I speak of that is in our passage today? If you'll look with me in verse 28. We are told that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is not two different types of people. One that loves God and one that's called according to his purpose. This is a group of people that both love God and have been called according to his purpose. Why these two qualifications? Why not just for those who love God, all things work together for good? It's often that this, this verse is misquoted as saying that. But for those who love God, all things work together for good. And it's often that the second qualification is dismissed or just dropped off. So why isn't it just for those who love God, all things work together for good. Who would that promise depend upon if that were the case? Us. You. Me. Are you good enough? Am I good enough to make that promise stick? I don't think I am. In fact, without God, I know I'm not. So that begs the question, who is able to uphold the promise? God. God. Who is the firm foundation that this promise is built upon? It is the one who calls. God. But then we may ask, then why not just say, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose? And that's a good question. But if it did say that, 
we would then ask, how do we know if we are called? And how do we know if we are called? We know that we are called because we love him. We love God. Loving God is a fruit of our calling. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Going back to the question I asked at the beginning of the sermon, do you love God? You would not if you were not called. You would not love God if you were not called. We love God because he called us to love him. The foundation of the promise that all things work together for our good is made up of both, of both the, uh, the objective, godly foundations and subjective, human foundations. I'll say that again. The foundation of the promise that all things work together for our good is made up of both objective, godly foundations and subjective, and a subjective human foundation. Our love for him is subjective. It ebbs and it flows. There are times that we experience an overwhelmingly strong love for him, and there are times that our love for him is barely holding on. God's call is objective. It is outside of our control. God's call is his act. Our love is ours. God's calling is the cause, and our love is the effect. We don't often hear the term calling in reference to our relationship with God. In my experience, we usually only hear it used when someone is referring to their occupation or their ministry. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone talk about when God called them. I think we have a whole slew of terms that we use in Christian speak to describe when we each responded to God, when we each acknowledged who he is, After reading this text, I would encourage us to use the term. Paul frequently uses it to describe this step in our salvation or redemption, and as does John, Peter, and Jude. So what is it exactly that Paul is referencing when he is saying that a person is called? What happens when someone is called? He is referencing what most theologians call the effectual call. The effectual call differs from what some label the general call. You often hear the general call. The general call is what most pastors, preachers, evangelists do when they or we share the gospel with everyone and anyone who will listen. We preach the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen. The effectual call may happen simultaneously with the general call, Or it may happen in some other way when the gospel of Christ awakens an individual to hear and see the truth. So to clarify, the effectual call differs from the general call and that you are awakened. The effectual call awakens an individual to hear and see the truth of Christ. Some people can pinpoint in an exact moment at which they respond to the call. I can't do that. But I can remember when God took a hold of my life and, and I knew everything had to change. 
This was before I met my wife, so you got to bear with me here for a moment. I was living with a girl who was a youth pastor, ironically, which I would not recommend. In fact, I wouldn't recommend cohabitation outside of biblical marriage in any way, shape, or form, but that's a whole other topic. Anyways, I started and I continued to study the Word of God. I felt convicted. And I realized that I wanted and needed to follow him. I moved out, and obviously that relationship didn't last. Thank God for that, right? (laughs) But then I started looking for a church. And I was raised Catholic, so I attended two Catholic services. And something told me that wasn't it. It wasn't what I was looking for. And I ended up getting in contact with an old high school classmate. I started attending a charismatic church. (laughs) And that's actually where my walk with the Lord continued. And through some other various twists and turns, continues to this day here before you. Obviously, not all calls are the same. In preparation for my sermon, I was talking to my wife about what the calling looked like for her. When my wife Jen was in high school, she responded to the Lord's call. Sorry, I don't mean to get emotional, but it is my wife. She was feeling the effects of being a product of a broken family. She was dealing with parents who were arguing back and forth. She watched her mother go through failing relationships. She felt like there had to be something more than all the chaos. Praise God, she opened up to a friend at work, and that friend introduced her to Jesus, and she began attending church with her her friend and her friend's family. Many biblical commentators agree that the closest example of the calling of God is the story of Lazarus, which says a lot about our spiritual state before God calls us, because as most of you know, Lazarus was dead. If you remember the story, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus who had become ill. Jesus was notified that Lazarus was sick, but he delayed going to see him until after Lazarus had died. Although, as most of you also know, Lazarus did not stay dead. In fact, much is revealed about God throughout this, the entire situation, the entire change of events. When, when Jesus initially had heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had been buried in the tomb for four days. When he told Lazarus' sister Martha, your brother will rise again, she made quite the statement of faith. Martha said, I know he will rise again. In the resurrection on the last day, 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus eventually made his way to the tomb. And when he did, he instructed them to roll away the stone. And scripture says that he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus did just that. Under the promise that all things will work together for God, or for, for work together for the good of those who love God, is the work of God, his calling. And under his calling is his purpose. As the end of verse 28 states, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's purposes are eternal, and what God destines to happen, happens. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the purpose for which we, Christians, in Christ, are called? The purpose is to be conformed to the image of Jesus and to be included in a group that 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 has Jesus as our older, much superior brother. How are we assured that the called, and only the called, have and will have everything work together for our good to that end? Verse 29 begins with for or because. God foreknew and predestined it to be so. There are certainties on each side of our calling that both secure our calling and reveal the lasting effects of it. God's foreknowledge and predestining secures our calling. And his justification and glorification reveal the everlasting effects of it. We are called to be like Jesus and to be with him. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Everyone who is predestined to be like him and be with him are called. Predestination is another foundational rock under the promise that all things work together for our good. Again, back to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God predestined our Christ-likeness. And to make it happen, he, God, effectually called us. And so that all things could work together for our good, he, God, justified us through Christ's sinless life and death. And so he... God will glorify every one of us.
God will glorify every one of us. What does that mean for us? It means that those who love God and are called according to his purpose are absolutely, eternally secure. That we will be glorified with him and spend all of eternity in his glorious presence. All things work together for our good. Or more specifically, all things work together to make us look more like Jesus. The sanctification process that begins when the calling takes place and will go on until we are with him. All things work together to bring us into brotherly fellowship with Jesus. All things work together so that we are and will be glorified with Jesus. God is truly sovereign over our salvation. He is sovereign in redeeming his people for himself. There is some debate over the extent to which God is sovereign over our salvation. John Stott references Dr. J.I. Packer, Dr. J.I. Packer's essay, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, in which Dr. Parker, or Dr. Packer excuse me, points out that, in fact, all, Christians believe, all Christian people believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, even if they deny it. Two facts show this, he writes. In the first place, you give God thanks for your conversion. Now, why do you do this? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself. He saved you. There's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. So our thanksgiving and our intercessions prove that we believe in divine sovereignty. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. We must also remember that within God's sovereignty, on this side of eternity, there is suffering. The context in which Romans 8.28 is surrounded attests to it. Romans 8.17 says that we will suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him. 8.18 states, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In Romans 8.20, we are told that creation is subject to futility. In Romans 8.23, we groan for the redemption of our mortal bodies. Romans 8.25 indicates that we often don't see evidence of our salvation which could very well possibly cause suffering. And Romans 8.35 specifically describes suffering that we may face as tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger, or the sword. And there, in Romans 8.35, Psalm 44.22 is cited. And that psalm says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet the promise remains, and it is true, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We see examples of this very fact all throughout Scripture. Perhaps the most notable example is that of the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Many of you remember the story, so I'm going to try to just hit on some of the main points. But Joseph had a dream. He had a dream that his brothers would serve him, 
And he was the younger brother, so this, this bothered them quite a bit. They conspired to kill him. They stripped him of his robe, and they threw him into a pit. And eventually they sold him to a caravan, that, and he was sold into slavery in Egypt. They took his robe, and they bathed it in blood. They took it to his father Jacob, so that Jacob would think that his son had died. When Jacob was enslaved, he was, he was sold to Potiphar, and things kind of started looking up. Potiphar was putting him in charge of some things of his house. But then he was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife, and he was thrown into prison. Ironically, things were going well for him there, too, which is kind of hard to say when you're thinking he's in prison, what could be going right? But he was working there and, and doing things well, and then he had two cellmates that had dreams. And he, these cellmates brought these dreams to, to Joseph, and Joseph could interpret the dreams. One of the uh, individuals that was having a dream was Pharaoh's cupbearer. The other one was the chief baker. And so Joseph translated their dreams, and when they got released, he asked the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh about them. Well, naturally, the cupbearer forgot about him. So Joseph remained for two more years in, in prison. And then Pharaoh had a dream. And Pharaoh couldn't understand what the dream was all about. And that is when the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And he says, oh yeah, I know this guy that can, that, that, that can translate this dream, that can interpret this dream for you. It had been 17 years since he had been sold into slavery when Pharaoh finally came to, to get uh, Joseph out of prison to interpret his dream. And when, and when he interpreted the dream, he saw that there was going to be a famine that was going to break out in the land. So Pharaoh put him in charge of it all. Again, things started looking up, right? Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the land and the food. Famine broke out and his, brothers were sent to, and his brothers were sent to him to get food, but they did not know it was him. They didn't know it was Joseph until he revealed himself to them. And he said, this is in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. Genesis said, or Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. He's saying that the famine is going to remain for another five years. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Genesis fifty twenty. Again, this is Joseph speaking. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There are numbers of other examples of suffering in the lives of God's people that ultimately work together for good. But even with that being said, you may be thinking, I don't know if I could do that. If I could last, if I could hold on, allow me to give you some reassurance. He who called you will keep you. 
We may have some seasons of doubt, but he will keep us. Jude 1.1 states that those who are called beloved in God the Father are kept for Jesus Christ. Kept. 1 Corinthians 1.8 Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the com- coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Worship team, you can come on up. We go back to our verse. We go back to our scripture today. Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. And I'm just going to read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is seeing you through. From beginning to end, he will keep you. I end with the doxology that we can be found in Jude. Jude 24 through 25. Uh, and the, the doxology is a prayer, so this will be my closing prayer. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Thank you, Brad, for sharing that. I'd like to share something just before we um, get into our final song.